Imagine you are at the grocery store and you are loading your supplies into your bag. You want to be efficient, so you're trying to pack in as much as possible. You begin to load too much for the bag to handle, so a tear forms. At first, you may not notice, but as you load more and more, the extra weight will cause it to rip even further, moving along the fabric of the bag. The more you strain the fabric, the further the tear will travel, until finally, if you're not careful, everything falls out. In an aortic dissection, a tear in the inner vessel wall forms, which allows entry and accumulation of blood between the layers of the aorta. As long as you continue to strain the vessel wall with high blood pressure, the tear will propagate further and further, creating an ever-lengthening blood-filled false lumen along the aorta. Today, our patient has an aortic dissection and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Tearing Up, an approach to aortic dissection. All right, time for a minute physiology. In order to understand the pathophysiology of an aortic dissection, you have to remember the natural layers of the aorta. The intima, which is the innermost layer containing the endothelium, the media, which is the middle layer containing the vascular smooth muscle, and the adventitia, which is the outermost collagenous layer, which also contains the vasovisorum and nerve fibers. A dissection occurs when a tear in the intima leads to blood from the aortic lumen entering the vessel wall, separating the intima from the media and creating what is called a false lumen. Once high blood pressure begins to enter this space, the separation between the intima and the media can expand either proximally or distally, thus propagating the false lumen along the length of the aorta and the adjoining vessels. The location and extent of the aortic dissection is used to separate dissections into two distinct categories using the Stanford classification system. Any dissection that involves the ascending aorta, regardless of the site of the initial tear, is classified as a type A dissection. All other dissections are type B. Now, let's develop our diagnostic approach to aortic dissection. Remember, the key to a thoughtful and organized approach is to understand not only the disease entity itself, but also the relevant causes and complications. To begin with the causes, The risk factors which predispose to dissection can be broadly classified into genetic, structural, and acquired categories. The genetic risk factors include connective tissue diseases such as Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos, which are responsible for about half of all dissections in patients less than 40 years old. The structural risk factors include bicuspid aortic valve, pre-existing aortic aneurysm, and aortic coarctation, each of which may provide a vulnerable surface for the intimal tear. The acquired category is diverse, including trauma, pregnancy, iatrogenic instrumentation, and large vessel vasculitis. However, the most important disease in this category is hypertension, which is present in three quarters of all patients with dissection. Hypertension can lead to dissection either via chronic vascular damage or through sudden, severe episodes of high blood pressure, which can be triggered by stimulant drug use such as cocaine or methamphetamines or intense weightlifting. The complications of aortic dissection stem naturally from the pathophysiology. 
Remember, once the intimal tear forms, it can spread proximally or distally along the length of the aorta. Proximal spread into the aortic valve itself can lead to acute aortic regurgitation, which is present in up to two-thirds of all type A dissections. Further extension into the pericardium can lead to tamponade and involvement of the coronary vessels and ostea, which can lead to ischemia and myocardial infarction. Similarly, extension into the carotid vessels can lead to contralateral stroke-like symptoms or ipsilateral Horner syndrome via compression of the sympathetic nerve fibers. In fact, any vascular bed fed by the aorta can be compromised, either by direct dissection or by upstream compression by the flap formed by the intimal tear. This is known as a malperfusion syndrome. For example, compromise of the anterior spinal artery can lead to downstream spinal cord ischemia, which can present as paraplegia. Other key end organs which can be impacted by a malperfusion syndrome include the kidneys, the GI tract, and the extremities. Now that we have discussed the causes and complications, we can talk about the relevant findings on history and clinical exam. The classically taught presentation is of a patient experiencing sudden onset, severe, sharp, or tearing anterior chest pain. However, especially with type B dissections, this pain can radiate to or be primarily located in the back or abdomen. While pain is the most common presenting symptom, dissections can also be painless in 6-10% to of cases so it is important to remember the other manifestations. Patients may also complain of shortness of breath, orthopnea, or syncope, especially in the case of tamponade or acute heart failure from aortic regurgitation. Additionally, some patients may present with neurologic symptoms, which could range from stroke territory deficits from carotid involvement to paraplegia from spinal ischemia. Also, always remember to look for potential causes of dissection. For the genetic causes, ask about family history of connective tissue disease or the presence of classic symptoms, such as joint hypermobility or skin extensibility. For the acquired cases, ask about history of hypertension, recent drug use, or incident trauma. When approaching the physical exam, always begin with the basics, the vitals. While aortic dissection is typically associated with severe hypertension, Don't forget that these patients can also present with signs of shock, including hypotension and tachycardia. When assessing the blood pressure, make sure you check in on both arms. Up to 20 to 30% of patients have systolic blood pressure differential of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury between them. You can also look for associated hypoxia, which could be a clue for acute heart failure. The cardiovascular exam is also especially important A new diastolic murmur could indicate acute aortic regurgitation. If you are worried about the presence of tamponade, look for what is known as Beck's triad, muffled heart sounds, distended neck veins, and hypotension. On the vascular exam, make sure to look for signs of overt limb ischemia in all four extremities. More subtle signs of unequal blood flow include a pulse deficit, which is defined as a noticeable difference in the strength of a pulse on one side of the body. On the neurologic exam, assess carefully for the presence of neurologic compromise, including any changes in mental status, focal motor or sensory deficits, or more specific signs, like a new Horner syndrome. Lastly, make sure you assess for features of an underlying connective tissue disease, such as the presence of a typical marfanoid habitus, including tall stature, elongated fingers, and pectus excavatum. The JAMA Rational Clinical Exam summarizes the best clinical findings for the diagnosis of dissection nicely. 
The most useful findings include, in descending order, the presence of focal neurologic deficit, a pulse deficit, widened mediastinum on imaging, a past history of hypertension, a sudden or tearing quality of pain, a diastolic murmur, and lastly, a history of migrating pain. While none of these findings clinched the diagnosis in isolation, the presence of three or more of the mentioned findings had a positive likelihood ratio of 66. So pay close attention to these clues the next time you suspect the diagnosis. On to our workup. Your workup should be focused on diagnosing the aortic dissection itself, as well as identifying any downstream complications. At triage, your patients will have likely already received some basic investigations. A chest x-ray may demonstrate a widened mediastinum, which is defined as a mediastinum that measures greater than 8 centimeters on a portable film. An ECG may demonstrate signs of cardiac complications, including effusion or tamponade, or chronic left ventricular hypertrophy from hypertension. Similarly, labs may demonstrate evidence of downstream complications, such as an AKI from renal involvement or signs of developing shock, such as an elevated lactate or metabolic acidosis. Additionally, a negative D-dimer has been used to help rule out the diagnosis in low-risk individuals with a sensitivity of 97%. When it comes to making the final diagnosis of aortic dissection, your choice of test should be determined by your patient's clinical status. If they are hemodynamically stable, the optimal test is a CT angiogram. If they are too unstable to take to the CT scanner, perform a bedside transesophageal echocardiogram, or TEE, which can visualize both the dissected aorta and potential cardiac involvement. However, if you're using a TEE, remember that you may not get as complete a visualization of the aorta as you would with the CT angiogram and you still have to hemodynamically stabilize your patient enough to receive sedation for the procedure. Now, let's talk about management. The first principles of managing a patient with a confirmed or highly suspected dissection is the same as that for any critical illness. Make sure they're well monitored. Ensure that they are in a high-acuity setting, such as CCU or CVICU, with continuous cardiac monitoring, preferably with an arterial line in place. Place two large bore IVs if they are not in already. The definitive management of aortic dissection is heavily contingent on the location and presence of associated complications. All type A dissections require immediate consultation from cardiovascular surgery for repair given the very high risk of developing cardiovascular complications and associated hemodynamic collapse. Even with surgery, the in-hospital mortality of type A dissections is 27%, significantly higher than the comparative 10.6% with type B dissections. Without surgery, the in-hospital mortality rises to 58% for type A dissections. On the other hand, type B dissections are typically initially managed medically, unless there is evidence of ongoing extension of the dissection or a malperfusion syndrome. This approach is substantiated by trials such as the INSTEAD trial, which demonstrated there is no difference in two-year mortality between patients with uncomplicated type B dissection undergoing optimal medical management versus endovascular repair. The main cornerstones of medical management are blood pressure reduction and pain management. These measures prevent propagation of the dissection by A, decreasing left ventricular contractility and output, and B, reducing adrenergic stimulation, 
thus limiting shear stress on the aortic wall. Practically, this means immediately targeting a systolic blood pressure between 100 to 120 millimeters of mercury and maintaining the heart rate below 60. As a very important physiologic point, it is critical that you first administer a rate control and contractility agent, such as a beta blocker or a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, before providing any vasodilation. If you first provide a vasodilatory agent, it could induce a reflex catecholaminergic response, which will result in heightened LV contractility and output, thus worsening the shear stress. Once you've successfully brought your heart rate to less than 60 with a rate control agent such as labetalol or verapamil or diltiazem if beta blockers are not tolerated, you may then initiate a continuous infusion of a vasodilator, such as nitroglycerin or nitroprusside, to bring the systolic blood pressure below 120 as needed. Ensure that your patient's blood pressure is stable and in therapeutic range on these IV therapies before considering switching to oral options. It is very important to remember to provide adequate pain management throughout. Apart from the very important task of reducing your patient's discomfort, you also want to avoid any extra sympathetic stimulation. If your patient is developing signs of a malperfusion syndrome or extending dissection despite medical therapy, make sure to reassess the possibility of surgery. Once the acute phase of the illness is over, all patients with aortic dissection need to be maintained on lifelong antihypertensive therapy, usually with a target of less than 120 over 80. Make sure to address any potential inciting factors for hypertension, including drug use or strenuous exercise. If your patient is young or you have a clinical suspicion of underlying genetic disease, make sure to work them up as an outpatient. In the right patient, a secondary workup for hypertension may also be considered. Lastly, all patients need follow-up imaging. On top of a pre-discharge CT angiogram to establish a new baseline, patients should be scanned and assessed at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, and then annually henceforward. The screening process ensures that we can catch recurrence or worsening dissection early, as well as identifying any relevant post-surgical complications. All right, on to our medicine minute. As you can imagine, the presence of aortic dissection is not always specific and can be difficult to pick up. However, it is vital to diagnose. In order to decide which patients need imaging, you can use the ADDRS score or ADRS score. This score asks you to input whether your patient has A, a known high-risk condition, including Marfan syndrome, or a personal or family history of aortic disease, B, any high-risk pain feature, including any description of sudden, severe, or tearing quality of pain, and C, any high-risk exam feature, including pulse deficit, blood pressure differential, focal neurologic deficit, new aortic regurgitation murmur, or signs of shock. For scores greater than 1, you should proceed directly to conclusive imaging, meaning a CT angiogram or a TEE. For scores less than or equal to 1, they suggest performing a D-dimer. If the D-dimer is less than 500 nanograms per milliliter, you can rule out dissection with a sensitivity of 99%. If the D-dimer is greater than 500, then proceed to imaging. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Tearing Up, an Approach to Aortic Dissection. This episode was written by Dr. Leah Kosiakowski internal medicine resident, and was reviewed by Dr. Stephanie Poon, cardiologist, and Dr. Stephen Schumach, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lyon. 
Sound editing by Nathan Dupnik. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karianopoulos, and Zara Morelli. Theme song by Lakshman Fazanthamohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.